All right. If you want to grab a seat and grab a Bible, uh, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've got that on a hard copy of your Bible or on a digital device, if you want to pull that up on your phone, uh, the Bible app on your phone, I want to welcome those of you watching online. You can open a Bible at home as well. Uh, man, it, it's been actually, I, I just looked back, nine weeks since I've been here in the pulpit at YA. Uh, and so for those of you who don't know, my, my name is Brian Howard. I'm one of the pastors here, and I know some of you are new or new. Uh, thank you, Mom. Um, but uh, no, like new or newer here, and, 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 and I'm just glad to be with you, and, and, and Lord willing, unless something goes catastrophically wrong, uh, we'll be back a lot more this spring. Um, but, but, but really, I've been out of the pulpit because I've been traveling a ton, which is unusual for me because I have three small babies at home. Uh, and people with three small babies at home really don't travel a lot at all. Uh, but what happened was March 1st came, and that was my 10-year anniversary with my wife. Uh, yeah, so we got to go away and, and celebrate. And then um, the, the biggest trip I took in March was, was a trip um, to a country that I actually can't talk about publicly um, when we're on a live stream on the internet. Uh, it is a country in Asia where there is a ton of persecution against Christians. Uh, and so believers there are in danger constantly. And so even us saying, hey, we went there, we were part of it, uh, is a huge problem. So I, I go to this country, uh, and they're planting churches and raising up pastors. And our job uh, when we go to the country is just to go encourage them and celebrate them and pray for them and just pour into them as best we can because God's doing a great work there. And so what happens is we go to one of these places where they're training them, these training centers for pastors, uh, and we, we, we're told that we're about to go into a little room, maybe with 20, 25 of these um, young pastors. And so what happens is we're walking into the room, and it's downstairs in a basement. And as we're walking downstairs into the basement, we hear music, like, blasting from the basement. And it's this beautiful song. And, and then we start to hear what sounds like they're clapping their hands. And, and, and so we, we know we're walking into this environment where this is happening, and then we walk into the room, and, and, and what's actually happening is all 25 of these young men, mostly your age, young adults, are, are dancing around the room in a circle, and all of them have sticks in their hand, and they're hitting the sticks together. And, and then the most unexpected part of the story happens at that point, because I'm watching in awe of this dance that is going on. And what happens without me even really being consciously aware or even consenting to this moment was I was handed two of these sticks, and as you can see here, I began to participate <laughs> in the dance. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to the photo here, but let me tell you, it was exhilarating, it was terrifying, it was like, my, I was out of breath very quickly, but here I am like dancing around the room and was like into it. It was like the dance had started and I just kind of got whipped into it. And it was totally uncomfortable and totally awesome. And I was thinking about this moment as we got to the text we're going to hit tonight in first, it's like first Peter chapter two. Like in this moment, I am pulled into this dance that started before I got there and I'm suddenly in the middle of it and I didn't, it's zero to 60 real quick, right? This is what I think some of you are going to experience tonight as we open up first Peter chapter two. Because here's what I know. Some of you have been tracking along diligently as we've been in this First Peter 2 series. But if you're anything like most church folk, maybe you've missed a week, or maybe you haven't been here in a long time. And so we're going to get to the first verse tonight, and it's going to be like, yeah, I'm at church, I'm hanging with my friends, we're singing worship songs. And then this verse is just going to hit you, and you're going to be like thrown into the middle of this thing, kind of going, where in the world did this come from? But here's what I want you to know. This dance here, at some point started, and it all seemed reasonable, and it all made sense, and then I just got sucked into the middle. And the same thing is true with the verse we're going to see tonight. Like the verse we're going to begin with tonight is going to seem like, where did that come from out of nowhere? But it didn't come out of nowhere. It came from a solid argument that's being built throughout this entire book. And so I want us to see this in light of this idea that we're just going to get tossed into the middle here. And here's the first verse we're going to look at tonight. First Peter chapter 2, verse 18. It says these words. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, 
submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. See what I mean? You're like, having a good time. It's church. Everything's nice. It's good. The goodness of God. We're singing about it. And then suddenly it's like slaves. What? Masters? Submit yourselves? Even the ones who are harsh? And so you kind of get thrown into the middle of this verse right here in the middle of First Peter. So here's what I want to do at the very beginning tonight. Throughout this series, one of the things we've tried to do uh, is we've tried to kind of do something we call like showing our work. Uh, and the point of showing our work is simply this, that, that we want to show you kind of how we approach the scriptures as the teachers of the word here. Uh, and so Pastor Brian or Pastor Sarah or Pastor Sean is trying to show you, it's not just that we kind of come to these conclusions or we happen to know, it's that we hit a text like this and we actually have to spend time doing the work to figure out how to present it to you guys in a way that makes sense and helps you live in love like Jesus. Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to show our work in this way. When I show the work tonight, we'll put the slide up there. Um, I want you to notice five different things in this text. I want you to notice five different things inside of yourself. In fact, I think most of Bible study is simply noticing what's already there. Uh, In fact, I think if you talk about going and doing a Bible study on your own, it's really just a Bible noticing. The best Bible teachers you know, and the most insightful people who know the Bible the best, are not the smartest people, They're not even the most educated people. They're the people who happen to notice what most people ignore. And so what we want to do when we're looking at a text in the Bible is we want to notice things, but then I want to say another thing we need to notice, and this is important for a text like this that we're looking at tonight. We need to notice actually what's going on inside of us too. And here's why. Because when you get to the text of the scripture, you do not look at it objectively. You come to it with all kinds of biases and preconceptions and ideas that are shaped by the 21st century, by the United States of America, uh, by your life, by your history, by all kinds of things. So when you get to a text, it's not just that you're noticing what's in the text. You also have to be aware of what's going on inside of you. Because if I am blind to the realities and the things that are in my way, I will be blind to what's actually going on inside the text. And so as I get to this text which again, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. I want us to notice five things tonight. Here's the first thing. I want you to notice your emotional discomfort when reading this verse. I just want you to notice that. I'm not saying that's good or bad or right or wrong. I just want you to notice and identify when I read the New Testament and I see the word slaves and it's not followed by slavery is the worst thing ever and it's bad and it's terrible and it should end. I just want you to notice how you respond to this. There's an emotional discomfort. And one of the things if you're going to be a student of the Bible that you have to get comfortable with is emotional discomfort. In a strange paradox, you actually have to become comfortable with saying, this text makes me uncomfortable, but I'm going to sit in it. This text makes me not feel so good on the inside, and yet I'm not going to ignore it. So the first thing we're going to notice is the emotional discomfort. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice your impulse to move past this verse. When you read a verse like this in the Bible, when you're on your own and you're just reading through the scripture, the impulse for those of us who know and love the word of God is to be like, Yeah, it's kind of a weird, like, just kind of move past that. And we want to blow past it and move past it and kind of ignore the things in the Bible that make us uncomfortable. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that if you want to become a rich, deep Bible reader who experiences all that the scriptures have for you, it happens not by you blowing past what you're uncomfortable with in the Bible. It happens when you sit in the things that make you uncomfortable. Like I remember a season of my life uh, where I was reading through the book of Romans and I got to Romans chapter 9. And during this season of my life, I remember just not liking what I was reading. 
And that might sound strange from a pastor, but I'm reading this and I just go, I don't like what I'm reading here. I don't like how it describes God. I don't like how it describes me. I don't like anything about this. And so I would just blow past it and try to ignore it. But then I remember the season of my life where I sat down and said, no, this is God's word. It's what he's revealed about himself. It's for my good and for my flourishing. And so I studied it. I wrestled it to the ground. And that was one of the most fruitful seasons of growth in my life when I didn't blow past it, but rather sat in it. Number three, I want you to notice where your objections to slavery come from. So initially you you hear this verse and you see that slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. There is an emotional reaction in you. And, And maybe there should be. Like we live in the 21st century in the West, and so most of you in your elementary school or middle school or high school days, you learned about slavery. And you learned about slavery in the context of the American South before the Civil War. And you heard of the horrors and just how ugly and sinful and wicked it is. You you learned to just be repelled by the very idea of slavery. And yet at the same time, what I want to point out is your objections to slavery come from this idea that people should not be held as property because they are created in the image of a holy God. They are worthy of dignity and value and respect. But I want you to know where you got that idea from. That didn't pop into your mind out of nowhere. We didn't come up with that as a culture. That comes from the very Bible that you're reading. And so when we come across a passage in the scripture that seems to violate something deeply held in us, what we want to do is we want to go, actually, this is coming from somewhere, and it's coming from the very scripture that I'm wrestling with right now. So either these scriptures are just hopelessly contradictory and no one knew what the other was saying, or there's actually something in me that I need to see differently in the text, something I need to see that God had a purpose for. Number four, I want you to notice where your mental picture of the word slaves come from, your mental picture of the word slaves. Again, for anyone who grew up in the American educational system, my hope is that you learned about the horrors of American slavery. Uh, of chattel slavery, of the Atlantic slave trade, of capturing and kidnapping human beings, bringing them across the Atlantic in horrid conditions, selling them into a brutal kind of slavery. I just want you to know that's the image that tends to pop into our brain. And the challenge for those of us tonight when we come to a text like this is we take uh, a pre-Civil War American slavery and we impose that upon this ancient text. Uh, And here's what I always want to bring us to when we see slavery in the scriptures. It is not the same thing that you have in your mind. I think this just matters entirely. That when the Bible says something, you don't get to take your 21st century understanding of that word and layer it on top. You actually have to do the work of removing the layer of your 21st century goggles and being able to see it for what it is. And here's an exercise I like to do when I see slavery and masters submitting to each other in the scriptures. Number five, I want you to notice how you would react if you replace the word slaves with employees and masters with employers. Now, I'm not claiming that slavery in the ancient world was exactly identical to the kind of commerce we do now, of employer and employee. But I am saying that that metaphor is closer to ancient slavery than the chattel slavery of pre-Civil War America was. Let me say that again to make sure I'm being clear here. That in our minds, there's kind of the chattel slavery, pre-Civil War, how horrible that went, and then there's sort of the employee-employer relationship that we're all comfortable with. And I'm saying that slavery, as it's described in Scripture, as it culturally was, was closer to this, where people would voluntarily step into this kind of slavery. It was actually a kind of indentured servitude that would pay off debts and would actually integrate them into society. I'm not saying it was the same, but I'm saying if I read it that way, And read, employees, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your employers, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I still have to wrestle with that text. 
but it changes my view of it. And what's the point of that exercise? The point is to notice what's actually making me reactive on the inside. Uh, again, my, my big point when we look at this text is that we don't want to blow past it. We don't want to ignore what's going on inside of us. We don't want to ignore the actual horror we should feel if the Bible was teaching that the chattel slaver we saw in pre-Civil War America was actually good and noble and right. But here's what we need to know. The Bible is not saying that. 1 Peter 2, 18, what do we want to do? We want to notice what the text is saying. We want to notice what's going on inside of us. Let me show you the next verse here. It continues. It says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And so once again, what I want to do with this text is I want to show our work here. And once again, I want to notice. I want to notice three things that's going on right here in this text. I want to show you this. I want us to notice three more things. The first thing I want us to notice here, I want you to notice the value on enduring unjust suffering in this passage. So this passage actually places a value on a kind of suffering in your life that is unjust, it is uncalled for. It even says it here in the text. Do you see it here? It's like, if you receive a beating for doing what's wrong and you endure it, that's of no value. Like if you steal from someone and you get caught and then you get in trouble, that, there's no value in that. If you do something horrible and you get arrested and thrown in jail, that, that doesn't make you noble. But it says there is a kind of unjust suffering in this world where we suffer not because we deserved it, not because we're getting the right punishment for what we did, but because it just happens to us. There's actually something that happens, and notice that there's a value on that in this passage. Number two, I want you to notice your reaction to the idea that unjust suffering has value. Because in our culture today, you are told that if you suffer and it is unjust, there is no value, it is all bad, it is all wrong, there is nothing redeemable, and to even claim that is to gaslight you into believing your situation is okay. But that's not what this text teaches. And again, when I come to the Bible, I don't want to come with all my preconceived notions of what the Bible should say and then come to it. I just want to come to it and say, you know what? I don't like the idea that unjust suffering has value, but it seems to say in this text that it does. And then number three, here's what I want you to notice. This will answer our question. I want you to notice who is seeing and remembering the unjust suffering. See, this text just doesn't say like, if you suffer unjustly, it'll make you stronger. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say if you suffer unjustly, it'll make you more sympathetic to the plight of other people who have suffered. That may be true, but that's not what it says. Notice that it is God that is commendable before God, that it is God who is seeing it. God is conscious of it. God is aware of it. Every time you have suffered in your life, the God of the universe sees you, he knows, he's taking score, he knows what happened, and he has not forgotten about it. I think there is something powerful in this text that it has to teach us. Again, this text is going to throw us immediately into the concept of slavery. And I think in a million different ways, it's going to cause all sorts of emotions in us. But what I don't want us to miss is that the deep purpose of this text is not to get us into this big debate about slavery or comparison or anything like that. It is to show us what God believes about those who suffer in unjust ways. So if that's my work, I want to show you some conclusions. And this conclusion is not... Everything, based off the work I said, it's just the conclusions I draw in reading these three verses. Conclusions on slavery in 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Number one, I want us to remember that slavery was universal in the ancient world and addressed in the Bible. If you have somehow come under the impression that slavery is kind of this unique thing to either the Western world or uh, certain parts of the world, no, it is a universal. It was the universal way of going throughout the world, and there were worse and better forms, but it was everywhere in the ancient world. 
Number two, I want you to see this, that there are certain kinds of slavery the Bible completely rejects. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, is going to condemn what, what the old versions called man-stealing and what um, the newer versions just call slave trading. And so the kind of slave trade where, where Africans were stolen from Africa and shipped across the Atlantic and enslaved in the United States of America is explicitly condemned in the Bible. And if anyone ever pushes back, just remember this verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 10 is going to include on a vice list these things that we are not to do as Christians, slave trading. And so any imagination that the Bible supports the idea that people can be property is completely blown up by this verse. The point of this verse is that people are not property. They were never meant to be property. People are never owned. You are owned by only one being, and that is God Almighty. So again, there are certain kinds of slavery the Bible completely rejects and condemns. Number three, there are certain kinds of slavery the Bible subtly subverts. So Again, it's going to condemn a kind of slavery where there is ownership, where people are bought and sold. Uh, and yet the Bible is not going to come out and condemn a kind of slavery where you can elect into it, where you can move into it to pay debts or to provide for yourself. Uh, and yet what I believe is it subtly subverts it. And so here's what I mean by subtly subverts it. Um, the Bible is going to say things in Philemon like, hey, uh, it's okay that you have your slave. Just treat him like a dear brother. Treat him with love. And so what's the scripture trying to do there? The scripture isn't trying to prop up the institution of slavery. The, the scriptures are trying to pour acid on it and dissolve it. it. It would be like saying, hey, it's totally okay if you steal things. You're just not allowed to take anything that's not yours. You'd be like, um, how do, I, I don't think I can do that, right? Like that's what you would reach. And this is what the scriptures are going to do with slavery. Rather than just coming out and making some 21st century-like statement that sounds like slavery is bad and we condemn it in all its forms, the Bible actually does this where it subtly subverts slavery in all of its ways. It says, yeah, there's this institution, but here's the deal. If you're going to walk with Jesus, what you need to do is you need to treat everyone, including your slaves, not as a slave, not as lesser, not as someone smaller or worse than you, but as a dear brother who is loved in the Lord. It subtly subverts slavery. Here's number four, that the teachings of the New Testament lead to an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And that is exactly what happens. As the Western world becomes Christianized, and there's good and there's bad in that, what ultimately happens is the institution of slavery will wilt and die. So as much as slavery is seen in the New Testament, what we also know historically, like there's no argument against this, the people who brought down the slave trade and ultimately slavery in our world were Christians. It was the church. It was the church who said, okay, if we're going to treat each other like dear brothers and sisters, if we're not going to buy and sell humans, if human beings are not for sale, then we cannot actually operate in this way anymore. And so again, here, here's what I want you to know. Um, there are a lot more things to say about slavery in the Bible. And I do not want to paint a picture like this is simple or this is easy. But as we jump into this text tonight, and that's immediately what hits us, I want us to realize some of these conclusions, but I don't want us to miss number five. Because number five is actually the point of this text. See, we, as people living in the 21st century West, we have to wrestle with this because this is outside of our context. But the point Peter is actually trying to make is number five, and that's this, that God promises high praise and meaningful reward for those who suffer unjustly. That is what the God of the universe promises. Like, I want you to know the God of the universe places reward on the table, and he says, if you have suffered unjustly, if you have suffered in ways you did not earn or deserve, if you have sat under harsh authority that has not treated you well, there is high praise, there is reward, God sees you, he knows you, and he has something for you. 
And that's the purpose of the rest of this text. So again, he's going to mention slaves, not because slaves are his big point. His point is that there is a kind of way in operating in life where we are treated poorly, we are treated harshly, where things do not go well, and yet what we do is we endure it. Not because it's good, not because we're pretending it's not a big deal, not because of any of that, but because the God of the universe sees it, he has high praise for it, and he rewards it. Let let me show you what I mean in verse 21. It says, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so what we know on the cross of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ dies on the cross for your sins and for your salvation. Like if you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, I want you to know that the central message of the Christian faith is not do better, be a good person, and God will love you. It's the opposite. It's that you are not a good person, you have not done everything right, and God loves you anyway. And he loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to suffer in your place for your sins and your salvation. That's the gospel. And yet we're told here that Christ suffers for you, not just to forgive you of your sins, but we're also told here, you see these words, to leave you an example. Like in other words, the cross of Jesus is not only where our sins are forgiven, it is an example Jesus lays down for us. And then it says that you should follow in his steps. So here at Calvary, we even heard this earlier tonight, AJ said this on the stage, that we are a church that lives and loves like Jesus. So the purpose isn't just that you would believe a bunch of things about God, but that you would allow that belief to shape the way you live and shape the way you love people. And so what do we want to do? We want to live and love like Jesus, not just in the good times, not just in times things are nice, but we actually want to live and love like Jesus in the moments where we are unjustly suffering in this world. In fact, I want us to know this tonight. Like what we are being called to do here is to live and love like Jesus in the moments where we are hurt, in the moments we are wounded. So see, I think what happens for a lot of us is we think like, okay, I'll live and love like Jesus, but when I get hurt or wounded, I'll just kind of act out of the emotion and the flesh and the things I feel on the inside. But that is not at all what Jesus calls us toward. In fact, Jesus is an example of this. And here's what I've learned over the years, that my response to hurt determines the health of my faith. My response to hurt, how I respond to someone hurting me, how I respond to someone slandering me, how I respond to someone being cruel to me, how I respond to being stabbed in the back, how I respond to the unexpected hurt that other people give me in this life tells me everything I need to know about the health of my faith. See, some people think the health of their faith is how many facts they know about the Bible. But you can know all kinds of facts about the Bible but not actually be spiritually healthy. Do you know that you can show up to all kinds of worship services but not actually be spiritually healthy? Do you know that you can have like a verse in all of your social media bios but actually not be spiritually healthy? But you want to know the people who look spiritually healthy, the people who are actually walking in spiritual health, are the ones who can be wounded. And rather than act out of the flesh with revenge and anger and vengeance, they're the people who live and love like Jesus. Like I was thinking about this um, when I was prepping for this sermon, I was thinking about the first time I can remember um, being deeply wounded by someone else. And this will sound silly to you, but I was in middle school. And do you remember in middle school, like the slightest thing was like the biggest thing, right? Uh, Maybe that's still you, Um, but sorry. (laughs) Sorry, that was harsh, Um, but it's true. Um, So like I was in middle school, and I'll never forget, I did a sleepover at my neighbor's house and uh, we were up late into the night and sleepovers, middle school, um, 
late into the night, you start to like, you're tired and all your guards go down. And so we started to talk about who we had crushes on, right? And I'm in middle school. And here's what, you know, here's what you need to know about. Um, I grew up with three brothers, house of all boys. It was just very masculine, rough and tumble. And growing up, I just had no idea how to talk to women at all. Like girl, I had no clue, no context for it. But I remember I was in middle school and I was starting to be like, oh, girls are pretty. And, and like, I saw this girl and I thought she was pretty. And so I blurted out her name. And I go to school the next day and at lunchtime, some people walk up to me and they start telling me that they know who I have a crush on. They start telling me who I have a crush They said her name. I had only shared this with one person, my neighbor across the street at the sleepover last night. And here they are and they're sharing this with me, stabbed directly in the back. And I remember that moment and you might not think it was a big deal, but I was 12 years old and it was devastating to me. And I remember that day, I'll never forget this moment. After school, I saw him, he lived across the street from me. He came out of his house, I came out of mine. And I don't actually know the reason for this, but there was a giant bucket full of golf balls on my front porch and I picked them up and started throwing that. And I was so angry. So angry, because I stabbed in the back. He stabbed me in the back in that moment. And so I think of this. Um, my response to her demonstrates the health of my faith. Probably not the healthiest place in my faith right now, right? I will take golf balls and throw these at your head till you bleed, right? Not at all healthy. But here's what I've learned. When I respond like Jesus to hurt, that is evidence that my faith is healthy. It is evidence that my faith is actually in a healthy spot. So here's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about three ways we live in love like Jesus when we get hurt. And this is for you tonight if you have been hurt in any way meaningfully. See, I talked about my middle school thing, and that's silly. I can, I can laugh about that now. But I think some of you have been hurt in ways um, that it's not easy to laugh about. Like I think some of you have been broken up with recently, and it just wounded you deeply. Like I think some of you had a dad who never said, I'm proud of you. We had a mom who just wasn't there. Some of you have been abused, neglected. Some of you have been fired from a job, betrayed by a friend, left out to dry by someone you trusted. Some of you have walked through this life and you have experienced sexism, racism, bigotry. Maybe you've experienced what it feels like to just be a Christian and be walking with Jesus and be mocked and belittled and harshly treated because of that. But like, I don't know where you are in life, but if tonight you have experienced the pain of someone wounding you. Like there's pain in life that comes from like disease and natural causes. I'm not talking about that tonight. I'm talking about when another human being wounds you. There are three ways we live in love like Jesus. And listen tonight, um, if that's not you, if you don't have any wounds, if you're not walking through anything, I don't wish that upon you. I really don't. Um, if this is you tonight, this is a message for you. And if you're going, I don't have any wounds, I don't have anything I'm working, sometimes the message of God is to us, right? But then sometimes it's through us, right? And so if this is not you tonight, I just want you to like internalize these so the next time you're with someone who's deeply wounded, you can be like, hey, listen, listen, listen. Let's go to First Peter and look at how Jesus would have responded to wounds like this. I want you to see three reasons, three re or three ways we live in love like Jesus when we're wounded. Here's verse 22. It says, he committed no sin, this is Jesus, and no deceit was found in his mouth. So here's what I want you to remember about Jesus. Jesus is brutally beaten. He is crucified. He is murdered. He is betrayed. He is lied about. Everything goes horribly wrong. Like whatever thing you have gone through, whatever wound you've experienced, Jesus is like, been there, done that. I've had that pain and I've had that experience. But here's what we see about Jesus. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. So for Jesus, when it comes to his pain, it was 0% Jesus's fault and 100% everyone else's fault. And Jesus does this, but here's what we need to recognize. 
Jesus is the only one who gets to say that consistently about his life, right? That the pain he experiences is 0% his fault and 100% someone else's fault. So here's the first thing of three ways we live in love like Jesus when we get hurt. Number one, we own what we should. You own what you should. And so here's what I want you to know. I'm a married man, been married 10 years, happily married, love my wife, wouldn't go back for a single moment. And yet here's what's true about our marriage. I've wounded my wife. I've said things, not said things, did things that have wounded her and vice versa. She's wounded me. And there have been moments where she has wounded me where I have just wanted to point my finger and be like, you are the worst. You wounded me. You hurt me. You did this. It's your fault. And you know what? Sometimes in marriages, that's true. Can I tell you in my marriage, that's not entirely true. Like sometimes I get into a thing and I'm, I've, someone has wounded me, but then if I really think about it, I've actually wounded them too. Like this cycle of harshness and woundedness didn't start with them. It didn't come out of nowhere. It's not 100-0. I actually contributed to this in some way. And I think one of the most healthy things for us when we have been wounded is to ask the question, is this my fault? Is there anything I've done? Is there any way I have contributed to this pain? Uh, like I know people who have been fired or let go from jobs. And it's fascinating to listen to someone who's been fired or let go from a job because the way they describe it is I was perfect. I was the best employee they ever had. I was absolutely shimmering and perfect in every way. And then they just out of the blue fired me. And, and do you know that like sometimes that happens? But honestly, most of the time it doesn't. Uh, like, do you know that in our life, sometimes what we want to do is we just want to externalize and blame every person. And yet what we have to do is we should say this, own what I should. But, th but then let me just, show you why I use that word. Because you should own what you should, but then listen to me. Don't own what you shouldn't. Don't own what you shouldn't. Let me just speak this over you tonight because someone needs to hear this. If you were abused as a kid, that's 0% your fault. 0%. I'm a dad of three young kids. And if there's ever a moment where I physically harm those children, where I do anything to them, there is nothing in this world they have done that could have deserved that. If you were hurt as a kid, it's not your fault. Don't you dare internalize that. You own what you should, and you should not own that. Listen, ladies in the room, let me speak to you. Some of you have been violated in ways you should never have been violated. And the temptation is to say, well, maybe it was my fault. Maybe it was on me. Maybe I actually deserve it. Maybe I actually brought this about. Let me tell you, don't worry that. That's not on you. Some of you have been hurt by churches. Maybe even our church. And listen, there are complications and all sorts of things in churches, but if you have suffered abuse from a church, if you've suffered abuse from anyone, don't wear that. Don't own that. That's not on you. So there are things in this life that we need to say, okay, I've been wounded, but I was actually part of a really destructive thing here. And there might be some things I have to own and examine, but then there's other things in our life we need to make sure that we don't internalize and don't own. And you go, Brian, how do I know the difference? And the answer is you get wise people around you who are willing to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. You get people around you who are willing to speak into you and help you process through that. Again, for Jesus, it says there was no deceit in his mouth, no sin. That's not Brian Howard. And I've been wounded in this life, and that's not me. So for Jesus, it's 0%, 100%. But what we need to do is we need to say, what sin should I own? And what stuff shouldn't I own? What stuff do I have no business owning? This is why Jesus says this. He, again, he teaches this way in Matthew 7. Verse three, he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me first take the speck out of your eye when all the time you had a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. And so again, when I've been wounded, there are some things I should not own. Any kind of abuse, any kind of power imbalance, anything like that I shouldn't own. 
But I also want to make sure I don't get to the place where I'm wounded. Here's what I've seen. I've seen far too many young people grow up and they're in their 20s and they just rage against everything in the world because everyone else has wronged them and they are perfect. Every relationship they've been in has ended poorly and it's always the girl's fault. Every relationship they're in ends poorly and it's always the guy's fault. And at some point we want to say, okay, before I'm criticizing the world, do I need to make sure there's not a log in my own eye? That's what we need to consider when we've been wounded. Number one, we own what we should. Here's how number two goes in verse 23. It says this, it says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. So in other words, Jesus, at first, he made no threats. He said nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. So that's the first thing he's going to examine is, did I do anything wrong? And then the second, it says that Jesus made no, no, he didn't retaliate. He made no threats. And here's what I want you to know. That is not because Jesus was weak and a pushover. It's not because Jesus didn't have strength. Some of you have a vision and an image of Jesus in your mind where he's this meek little guy walking around who's just like, hey, everyone love one another. Like he just had no strength whatsoever. And you have this mental picture of this Jesus who's weak. Here's actual Jesus, Matthew 26, 53. He says to his disciples, he says, do you not think that I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So, so here's what Jesus is saying. Here's a, a legion in the ancient Roman world was 5,000 people. 5,000 troops. So quick, back of the napkin math here, says that's 60,000 angels. Jesus is like, if I wanted to, I could be the general leading 60,000 angels to destroy all of you. Like Jesus knows, Jesus has power. He can blow everyone away. Jesus does not not retaliate. He doesn't not speak up because he's weak. He doesn't speak up because he's incredibly strong. And I want us to be aware that when we choose not to retaliate, when we have been wounded, that that is not a symbol of your weakness. It is a symbol of your great strength. Here's number two. We refuse to retaliate. We refuse to retaliate. We refuse to get revenge. We refuse to get back. We refuse to do the thing that is our impulse to do. Remember when you were a kid um, and something wrong would happen to you. You were playing with your siblings, your brothers or your sisters, uh, and they would steal a toy. And I see this with my own children, but you remember this when you were a kid, right? Like, what did you want to do when someone took something from you? You wanted to take it back. And not just take it back, you wanted to punch them or push them or, or, or somehow make them suffer a little bit. If someone did something wrong to you, you wanted to hit them back. If someone did something bad to you, you wanted to inflict pain upon them. And then here's what tends to happen. Um, we grow up and we kind of have this silly imagination that somehow... Uh, we don't do revenge anymore because you don't punch people as much. Now, maybe you punch people and you should stop doing that, okay? Um, maybe violence, I'm, and I'm not <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but not really, because violence is a major issue, right? But for most of you, I'm guessing your major thing to get back at people isn't violence. But what happened to you? You didn't get rid of revenge. You just switched from violence to words because that's what you want to do, Right? When you get wounded, it's usually not because someone punched you or hurt you physically. I know that's happened to some of you. But for most of us at our age, when someone wounds us, it's because of something they said to you. It's because of something they said about you. It's because your ex-girlfriend was saying things about you that wounded you. It's because someone posted something on your social media that just stuck in your craw. It's because you heard someone who said something and they said something and it was this snide little comment or this is passive aggressive like, oh, you chose to wear that tonight type comment, right? Like that's what happens. And when they speak to us and those words wound us, what we want to do is we want to snap back at them. We want to have the final word. We want to send that zinger at them. We want to have that great comeback. And yet, what does Jesus model for us 
When we are wounded, what do we want to do? We want to refuse to retaliate. And so here's what I've learned that meant. Um, I've learned when it comes to spirituality that sometimes spiritual maturity comes through speaking. It comes through speaking up and saying something. Sometimes you're afraid. And you're actually so afraid of people's judgment or them being negative toward you. You're so afraid of what they would say to you that you actually say nothing and you sit in silence. And spiritual maturity is you having the courage to speak up. But then here's what I've learned too, that other times spiritual maturity comes through silence. It comes through silence. And one of the most spiritually mature things we can do when we are wounded, when someone insults us, when someone says something and we want to send that zinger back at them, that comeback, that final word, that one-liner, we want to dunk on them, we want to destroy them, sometimes spiritual maturity doesn't come through speaking, it comes through silence. Now, you might ask the question, okay, so how do I know? Because sometimes it's speaking and sometimes it's silence, so which do I do? And some of you are just wired to never say anything. So you're like, I will just never say anything ever because conflict is the absolute worst and I will avoid conflict no matter what it costs in my life. And some of you are the other way. You're a total hothead. You always want to say something and so you're just going to default to that. So which is it? And here's what I've learned. If the well-being of others is at stake, choose to speak. Choose to speak. If you're seeing something where, where people are being harmed and you're getting harmed, but other people who are like you are being harmed, people who look like you, talk like you, vote like you, uh, come from places like you, uh, if you see racial discrimination, sexual discrimination, if you see that going on and you feel like I've been wounded, but a bunch of other people are wounded, it's time to speak up. It's time to say something. But then here's what I've learned in my life and here's what's very common for a lot of us. If only your pride and ego are at stake, choose silence. If it's only your pride, if it's only your ego, if you've been wounded because someone said something about you and the only person who it's really affecting is you and just your pride and your ego and you want to show yourself to be right, you want to show yourself to be better, you want to show yourself to be justified, you follow the model of Jesus. You stay silent. You refuse to snap back. You refuse to strike back. Sometimes the most powerful and strong thing you can do when you've wounded is to choose to say nothing. Verse 23 says this. It says, instead, he trusted himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus is 100% in the right. He doesn't get back. And what does it say Jesus does? Jesus entrusts himself to him who judges justly. This is actually the kind of justice all of us want in this world. The kind of justice all of us want from a very young age is for someone to judge and to judge justly. So imagine this, you were a kid and uh, imagine you were playing with a bunch of other kids in a room, there were no adults there, and then suddenly something catastrophic happens. The lamp shatters or something goes horribly wrong or there's screams or something goes really wrong. And what happens? Adults rush into the room. And when adults rush into the room and you saw that someone else did something bad and it caused a thing, the first question you're asking is, is anyone actually going to do anything about this? Or are the adults just going to kind of ignore this and us kids are left to our own in this own little society we built? So is anyone going to step in and do anything about this? But then when an adult does step in, here's the greatest fear you had. Do you remember when you were a kid and an adult would walk into a situation that they didn't fully know and suddenly you were lumped in and you were in trouble for something you didn't even do? And you're protesting, you're like, I didn't have anything to do with that. I was just over here, I didn't do anything. Why? Because what we want is for someone to judge. But what we want is for someone to judge justly. That's what this text tells us. That God is not only going to judge the world, but God is going to judge justly. He is going to judge properly. He's going to make the right judgment about what happened in this life. We said there's three ways. Three ways we live in love like Jesus when we're hurt. The first, the first is that we... Um, is that we examine ourselves. The first uh, is that we uh, own what we should. Number two is we refuse to retaliate. 
And number three is that we trust that God really will judge the person who hurt us. He really, he really will. And I think most of us, if we're just honest, we don't really believe this. This is why it's so significant to know what the scriptures say, that there will come a day where every single one of us, you and me included, will stand before the God of the universe and we will give an account, the scriptures say, for every careless word we have ever spoken. Meaning God has a record, he knows exactly what you've done, and you will give an account for that in your life. Which means the ex-boyfriend who hurts you, the ex-boss who fired you, the person who wounded you, the person who abused you, the person who you think got away with it, has not and will not get away with anything. They will stand before the God of the universe one day. And what we take confidence in is not that in this life we'll get back at them eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Instead, what we do is this. We have a confidence that the God of the universe actually will judge the person who has wounded us. And so let me just put it to you this way. So one of my jobs uh, as a preacher is to get up on stages and say things at times that are uncomfortable, that are difficult for people to hear. And and I don't need any sympathy. It's part of the gig, but I need you to know sometimes it hurts. People say harsh things. People say mean things. The the emails I get, the things that people say, the ways people communicate to me, the things people assume are true about me that were never true about me, the accusations lobbed at me after I say difficult things. And so I receive an email. Just imagine. I receive an email where someone's just angry and they're just spewing venom out all over me. What do I want to do when I receive a criticism like that? Well, number one, I want to own what I should. I know that I'm not ever going to own uh, that I said something that God said and they just didn't like it. That's not on me. And yet what I am going to own is that sometimes I say stuff that comes from my own flesh. Sometimes I was too harsh. Sometimes I wasn't kind. Sometimes I was speaking in such a way that was just too mean or too aggressive. And I have to know that about myself. I have to own that. So I'm going to own what I should and not what I shouldn't. Number two, I'm going to refuse to retaliate. Do you know that sometimes I get an email and what I want to do is I want to send like a one-line zinger back and be like, oh yeah, boom, and do that. And you know what? I could. Sometimes I got the line. Sometimes I'm like awake at night. I'm like, oh, that's a good one, right? Like I know what I want to say. Like, and, 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 and here's the deal. I could. But, but, but you know what Jesus did? He just chose not to retaliate because you know what? I get a mean email. You know the only person that affects is me, my ego. I don't need to retaliate. I don't need to be right. You know what? I just write back sometimes. Thank you so much for your input. May God bless you as you live in love like Jesus. You know what that means? Like, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to try to prove myself right. I'm not going to try to be right in this moment. I'm not going to try to win this moment. So many of us, when we get wounded, we want to win. We want to show ourselves to be right. We want to justify ourselves before the other person. And God says, you don't need to do that. And then finally, here's what I need to know. God really will judge the person who hurt you. Do you know what I know? If someone's angry at me, outraged with me, if someone hates me, if someone thinks the wor- like I'm just the worst kind of person in the world, I know that both of us will stand before God one day and he's going to sort it out. And that is the most freeing thing in my life. Like I don't have to justify myself to any of you. And you don't have to justify yourself to me. You don't have to prove yourself to your mom or to your dad or to your ex or the person who fired you, or the person who let you go, the person who stabbed you in your back. You don't have to justify yourself because God is the one who justifies. And you will stand before him in judgment one day. Let me give you two reasons we don't strike back. Let me give you two reasons we don't choose to destroy. Number one, we choose not to get even with others because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like, just hear me on this tonight. If you have been wounded and you just want to get back at them, you want to snap back at them, you want them to know how much you've suffered, and so you're going to hit them twice as hard, I know you think that's going to bring healing to your life, but it won't. It only makes things worse. And the reason I know that is because you've done that in your life before, where you've smacked back at the person who hurts you. 
and it feels good for a moment, but it doesn't actually heal the wounds. You getting revenge will not heal the wounds of your life. Only God does that. Number one, it doesn't work. And number two, we choose not to get even with others because Jesus chose not to get even with us. And this is the gospel message. The gospel message that Peter is going to close here is simply this, that Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, could have chosen to get even with you, but he didn't. That's what it says in verse 24. It says, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Like in other words, Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is inflicted pain upon him that we can't possibly imagine. Mark 15 says this, the soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together for the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and twisted a crown of thorns and set it on him. Then they began to call out to him, hail, king of the Jews. And again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit upon him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And they went to mock him, and they took the purple robe and the clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They just list off what they did to Jesus. They mocked him, they belittled him, they tortured him, they hit him, they spit upon him, they lied about him. You know that Jesus had every impulse in that moment to get back at them? Jesus, the one who could call 60,000 angels? Jesus, the one who could just fry them from heaven? And yet, what's the response of Jesus? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's love. That's the gospel. That whatever you have done, whatever you have done to God, every way you have sinned, every way you have rebelled, every way you have offended and mocked and belittled and turned your back on God, every time you have looked at the God of the universe and gone, forget you, God, I'm doing my own thing, God could have killed you in that moment. And yet Jesus says this over you, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's love. That's the gospel. Why don't we get back at people who have wounded us? Because Jesus didn't get back at us. And we follow in his steps. It says this in verse 25. It says, for you like sheep were going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Like this is so significant. The reason we don't get back at others is because the God of the universe looked at us going astray. Us going our way, doing our own thing, saying, God, I know you created me. You gave me the very breath in my lungs, but forget you and forget your ways, God. I'm doing my own thing. We went in our own direction. We went astray. We wandered. And the God of the universe said, I want you anyway. I love you so much that I will send my own son to die on the cross to restore you to me. That's love. So here's what I need someone to know tonight someone who's been wandering, someone who's been doing their own thing. Maybe you've even been coming to church, but like there's a second life you have where you've been doing your own thing, you've been off on your own, or maybe you're actually here. I don't know you, but you're here tonight and it's been like a first time in a long time you've been at church. Here's what I want you to know. God's message to those who wander away, who wander astray, is not what's wrong with you. God's message to you tonight, if you have been wandering, if you've been going in your own direction, is not what's wrong with you. And so many of you think that the God of the universe looks at you and you're wandering and you're straying away from him and goes, what's wrong with you? You filthy piece of garbage. You think the God of the universe looks at you that way. But here's what I want you to know. God's message to people who wander away is welcome home. Welcome home. The God of the universe just extends his arms and says, I'm glad you're here. Let's go have a party. Let's go have a feast. Let's go celebrate because you were lost, but now you are found. And here's the invitation for all of you tonight. The invitation is not only for you to consider how you can act like Jesus when you've been wounded in your life. It is to understand how God acted when you wounded him. And that same God says, welcome home.
come on back. So here's what we're going to do. Our, our band will make their way up, and um, as always, uh, we'll close with a few songs here. And here's just what I'm aware of. Again, I, I don't know a specific story. I just, as I was prepping for this week, just felt the Holy Spirit telling me uh, that there are people in this room who have been wandering from God. And I don't know your story. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. Here's what I know, though, that some of you have been wandering from God, and you think the God of the universe is going, what's wrong with you? How dare you even come to church? I want nothing to do with you when the God of the universe says, welcome home. And tonight... I want to give some of you an opportunity to recognize, hey, I've been wandering from God, but if there's a God who wants me back, I want him too. So let's do this. Let's close our eyes all across this room. Let's pray. Um, and I'm just going to take a moment to pray and say, God, thank you for being a God who welcomes us home, who welcomes us back. Thank you for being a God who instead of destroying me in my rebellion, destroying me in my sin, instead chooses to embrace me to call me back as the shepherd and overseer of my soul. God, I thank you for the same is true for everyone in this room who's listening and just wrestling with where they've been. God, I know there are people who've been wandering. And God, I know you welcome them home. So all across this room, here's the invitation. If you've been wandering from God, maybe you've still been coming to church, you've just kind of been wandering. Or maybe you've not been coming to church and this is one of your first weeks back in a long time. I want you to know there's a God who says, welcome home. And so tonight, if that's you on three, I just want you to open your eyes and look straight at me so I can pray for you, so I can encourage you. If you've been wandering from the God of the universe on three, would you just open your eyes? One, two, three. All across this room. If that's not you, it doesn't have to be. Don't worry. But for some of you, that's you. And I want you to know that the consistent witness of the Bible is that our God is filled with compassion for you. He's filled with with love for you. He has not given up on you. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. And there never will come a day when he will. That same God says, welcome home. I love you. I see you. I sent Jesus to die for you. And that is my encouragement to you tonight. Lean into that God as we worship now. Father in heaven, I pray you would receive our praise. I pray you would receive our worship. I pray that you would welcome those of us who have been wandering home. God, help us to fill this room with your praise, with your glory, with your honor tonight. God, we thank you for being a God who loves us in the midst of everything. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand.